Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you and to be able to share with you from uh, God's Word in this part of the service. Um, we're going to have two Bible readings, uh, two Bible readings. The first passage that we're going to read about tells the story of Saul's dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then the second reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. These will come up on the screen where Paul reflects on that uh, encounter uh, much later on. So, uh, if we could turn in our Bibles, first of all, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, it will be there on the screen. Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin the reading at verse 1, and as is the practice, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And then we're going to turn to First Timothy, chapter 1, please. First Timothy, chapter 1. And verse 12, Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith 
and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, please be seated. And as you take your seats, I'd like you, if you have your Bible with you, to keep it open as we look together at this passage in 1 Timothy. But I want to begin with a question. I'm not expecting an answer from you, but I'd like you just to think about this question. And the question is this. Can you think of anything so wonderful that it is worth fighting to keep hold of? Say it again. Can you think of anything so wonderful that is worth fighting to keep hold of? And I'm sure we can all think of things that are valuable and that are worth fighting to keep hold of. Maybe possessions, privileges, or maybe some position. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with world leaders who fight hard to hold on to positions of authority. But what I'm thinking about this morning is this. Something that's so wonderful, something that so inspires you, something that creates a profound sense of awe and wonder within you, something so marvelous and something so intrinsically good that to let go of it would make the world a poorer place. Well, there is something like that. And it's what the Bible calls the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this letter that we've been reading from 1 Timothy. It's all about fighting to keep hold of the gospel, this wonderful message. But why was it necessary for Paul to write this letter? Why is it important for us today to heed his message? Well, to answer that question, we need to think a little bit about the background of this letter. We refer to it as 1 Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's highly esteemed co-workers. Sometime around the year AD 62-63, Timothy was appointed by the Apostle Paul to be his representative to the church of Ephesus or to the house churches in that great city of Ephesus. Some of you here may have visited the ruins of this great city, a city back then that had a population of about a quarter of a million people. And they were people from all different kinds of backgrounds, different religions, different walks of life, 
And for several years in that city, there had been this strong and thriving church. But Timothy was brought into the situation because the church was having problems, serious problems. And according to what the letter says, certain men who had previously held fast to the truth of God's Word and to the gospel, these men had started to wander from that truth. They were bringing in bad theology into the church, and they were leading others astray. And their teaching often ended up in meaningless discussions, and quarrels and fights would result between believers. This naturally affected the unity of the church and the harmony of the church. And more than that, it affected the witness of the church in that dark city. And the danger was this, that the church in Ephesus would become irrelevant. Irrelevant. To make matters worse, those men who were responsible for this situation, they weren't outsiders, as you find when you read Paul's letters to the Galatians, or to the Corinthians. No, these were insiders and very probably elders of the church. And such was the seriousness of the situation that Paul had to visit the church himself. And when he did so, he brought Timothy along with him. But other problems arose nearby, and Paul had to leave that situation and make his way to northern Greece, to Macedonia. And what he did was this. He left Timothy in charge of the situation until he returned. Well, it became apparent that Paul wasn't going to get back soon. And so realizing this, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And when you read it and you see that it's addressed to Timothy, remember this, that although it has Timothy's name on it, it really was called an open letter. It wasn't just for Timothy. It was for all the believers there in Ephesus. Now, Paul knew that Timothy's task of restoring order to the church was going to be very difficult indeed. Moreover, he knew from personal experience just how difficult it was to share the gospel in that city. Some very difficult, hostile people about. And so what does Paul do? Well, as he writes this letter, he comes to a point where he decides, I'm going to share with Timothy and with the church something of my experience of God's grace. Because that's what they need to hear, and that's what they need to rely upon if they're going to be obedient to the Lord's will. And so with that background in mind, think with me for a few minutes about what he actually says. And we're going to look at the verses that we have read there in 1 Timothy, verses 12 to 17, very quickly. What's lovely about these verses, I think, is this. It's, 
It's set within a frame of worship. Check out verse 12. Check out verse 17. Paul is worshiping God as he writes these words. He's he's so grateful to God for having experienced such grace that he talks about. And very quickly, we're going to look at three areas. Number one, Paul describes what he once was. What he once was. Secondly, he indicates how God responded to him back then. And thirdly, he emphasizes what he became as a response to God's treatment of him. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. First of all, he describes what he once was. Well, what was he? Well, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, does he? He didn't need to, really, because Timothy knew his story well, and doubtless the believers in Ephesus knew the story well, too. But he does mention three things here that are important. Number one, he reminds them, I was a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer. Verse 13, look, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Before the events of that Damascus road when the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ met with Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, Saul did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, much less that he was Israel's promised Messiah. And the claims of the Christians, these followers of Jesus, nauseated him and were offensive to his ears. They weren't teaching the truth. And as a matter of fact, they should be treated as enemies of Israel. Their teaching was poisonous, and it was seen as a threat to the hopes of Israel being restored. We needed to get rid of these Christians, cut them out of our society, like a cancer. And and Saul did not hesitate to dishonor the name of Jesus. He spoke profane and sacrilegious words against him, and in all probability even cursed him. And what's worse is this, that when you read about him in Acts, you discover that he he tried to get the Christians to curse Jesus as well, to blaspheme Jesus. He was a blasphemer. And then secondly, he tells us he was a persecutor. We've already touched on that a little bit in our, our first reading, as he tried to destroy the church, to wreak havoc within it. He went to great lengths. He even went to the high priest to get letters from the high priest so that he could go to Damascus and hunt down Christians there and ask that he might be given the power of extradition so that if he found any Christians in the Jewish synagogues, he could drag them back to Jerusalem and then put them on trial. And he freely admits within Acts that he persecuted the Christians to death. And thirdly, verse 13, not only a blasphemer, not only a persecutor, but he says, 
a violent man. Translators of the Bible have difficulty translating the word that he used. It's a very strong word. And it really describes a person like this, an insolent, arrogant man, and a man who finds satisfaction in humiliating other people. Ever come across someone like that? A man who finds satisfaction in humiliating other people. Well, such as Saul's, who later became the Apostle Paul, his description of himself. That's what I was. That's what I was like. Now, he freely admits, doesn't he, in this, that he acted out of blindness and ignorance, but it didn't make him any less culpable or responsible for the things that he did to the Christians. He was a man who deserved God's judgment, deserved God's wrath. And I dare say that there were some Christians in the early church who suffered because of him who thought, Lord, why don't you strike him down and do the church a favor? But how was he treated? How did the Lord respond to him? Two key words. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. And that's repeated by Paul in verse 16. He wants to emphasize this to Timothy and the believers there in Ephesus. Back then, he had no idea what his true state was before God. He thought he was doing the right thing in the eyes of God in hunting down these Christians. He did not see how wretched and miserable he was in the sight of God. And yet the amazing thing is this. God did not treat him as his sins deserved. God treated him with mercy. And that word mercy means this. It means that God had pity on him and showed him kindness. You know, every so often, newspapers will indicate the, the nation's rich lists. Maybe seen it? They show the names of the extremely wealthy and powerful people in the land. Some of the names are familiar, others are unfamiliar. And we're told how many millions they have in the bank, how wealthy they are. When you turn to Scripture, it tells us this. God, the God we're worshiping this morning, is rich in mercy. Ever think about that? He's rich in mercy. Furthermore, it says he delights to show mercy. He finds pleasure in showing mercy to people. It's incredible. But it's good news for all of us, isn't 
It's good news for you. It's good news for me. It's good news for the people outside of this school who need to hear the gospel. That the God whom we worship, yes, he's holy. Yes, he's just. But he delights in being merciful to people. And we not only need mercy to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we need mercy even when we're following Jesus Christ. Because if you look at the very beginning of this letter, when Paul greets Timothy, verse 2, what's he say? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in daily need of God's mercy toward us. Second key word is this very quickly. Grace. Grace. Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I was shown mercy, Paul says. I received grace. I received grace. And in this context, grace signifies the Lord's enabling power that leads to spiritual healing. And when Paul refers to grace here, he uses a most interesting word. In fact, he makes up the word. But it's translated in our Bibles like this. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. It means superabundantly. Super abundantly. Think of a river in space bursting its banks because of the volume of water that it's within its channels. That's the idea behind this word. Paul was overcome. Saul was overcome with God's grace. And it transformed his life. He was never the same again. And this overflowing grace that he delights in and praises God for and thanks Jesus for resulted in two gifts, the first of which is faith. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, when grace met me, it changed me, and it turned me from an unbeliever into a believer. And I now believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah. And I was wrong all those years ago. Wrong. The Lord gave him faith. The Lord also gave him something else. Do you see it there, verse 14? Along with faith and love. Isn't that beautiful? Faith and love. Love towards Christ. And love toward people, even the people of Christ. As well as others. That river of grace that flowed over him, washed away his hatred and his hostility. 
And he became a new man, a new creation. That's what grace does. Changes people radically. They become new creations. And before where there was unbelief, now there's faith. Before where there was maybe hatred and hostility, there's love. There's love. And that love that you feel this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the people around you, that's from the Lord. That's from the Lord. And it's evidence of His saving grace in your life. It's really remarkable what He once was. How the Lord treated Him. Then what He became. What He became. Well, of course, we know, don't we, that Saul of Tarsus became the great apostle Paul, the great missionary, teacher, missionary worker. Look at verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display, notice these words, might display what? His unlimited patience. You could translate it like this, his, the immensity of his patience as an example an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm going to betray my age here, but when I went to the big school, as the parents like to say to the younger children, when I went to the big school, I remember well on one occasion going into the classroom of a new teacher. And this teacher had quite a reputation, but not a good one. And uh, the week before, he had set some homework to be done. And so we all walked in and got down at our desks. And the first thing he said was this, now get out your homework, boys. And you, boy, What's your name? Told him his name. Come up to the front. Show me your homework. The boy said, Sir, I don't have it with me. You don't have it with you? Didn't you know you had to bring it in? Yes, sir. Stand over there. Deathly silence in the classroom. Teacher went over to a locker, pulled out a cane, asked the boy to hold his hand out in front of him, which he did. And he got whacked several times with the cane. With every blow, the rest of us winched. And I'm sitting there thinking that I remember to pack my homework. It was awful, (laughs) absolutely awful. We were stunned and left in fear. Not to be recommended. But he said this. After he had punished the boy, he said, 
Let that be an example to the rest of you. What an example. Thankfully, when you turn to what Paul writes here, Paul became an example of something very different indeed. Very different indeed. Look again at verse 16. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. What is Paul saying? He's simply saying this, that the Lord saved me so that I might be an example and exhibit to others of the immense long-suffering and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at me and think of my background and realize what the Lord has done in my life, that should be an encouragement to you and to others who hear the gospel that the Lord can show the same kind of mercy and grace to them. And Paul would often weave his personal story into his preaching and remind his hearers of what he once was. Wonderful, superabundant grace. So let me go back to where we began. Can you think of anything so wonderful that it's worth fighting to keep hold of? Something that so inspires you? Something that creates a profound sense of awe and wonder within you. Something so marvelous, something so intrinsically good that to let go of it, the world would be a poorer place. But yes, we can. And it's the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. That God should send his son into the world and on that cross bear the wrath of God for our sins paying the price that we might be forgiven and set free from sin's penalty, sin's power, and one day the very presence of sin. Paul is saying to Timothy, and he's saying to the church in Ephesus, you're part of this great rescue mission that God is carrying out in his world. Play your part. Play your part. And be encouraged. Be encouraged. Look at how the Lord treated me. Look at what His grace accomplished in my life. The persecutor, the blasphemer, the insolent man. There's many of them out there. Go out. Take my message to them. And may the Lord demonstrate his grace and his mercy to them as well. Now, as we close now in prayer, let's bow our heads. Maybe you can think of someone today, maybe a family member, maybe a colleague at work. You say to yourself, Lord, they're so hard. They're so hostile. Could they ever be saved? 
This text reminds us that with God, there are no impossible cases. There are no hopeless cases. Let's keep praying. Keep sharing our faith. And trust that the Lord will do the rest. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit will drive it home to all of our hearts. Again, we thank you for the power of your grace that transformed a man like Saul who became the Apostle Paul. Thank you for your grace in our lives and for the great transformation that has taken place and that ongoing work of change. May we day and daily look to you for your sustaining grace to help us in life. We pray in Jesus' name.